Hey everyone, welcome to the Wharton Fintech podcast. I am Tarang Gupta and our guest today is Nersan Chu, founder and CEO of Percent, which is a platform powering the future of private markets. Nelson is a serial entrepreneur with years of experience at Bank of America and BlackRock. Prior to Percent, Nelson founded a strategy consulting firm helping companies build product and raise capital for growth, creating over dollars 1 billion in equity value. He currently serves as an advisor to an ultra high net worth family office and is an angel investor with investments in BlockFi, Cadder, Clover Health and Tala. Join me as we explore what inspired Nelson to launch Percent, market opportunities such as credit default swaps, importance of culture in an organization and much more. Hope you like the show. Hi Nelson, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. How are you and where you're calling from? Hi Tara, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Uh, really looking forward to speaking today. Uh, I am calling from New York City, so nothing too crazy probably from some of the other guests on your podcast as well. All right, let's dive right in. For our listeners who may not know, could you provide like an overview of your career and how you got involved in fintech? Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to think that uh, everything I've done to date in my career has led me to this point. Uh, so I started off my career in traditional finance, obviously, uh, almost out of necessity because we're building a capital markets fintech company. You almost need to have that background at the very least. Uh, so I spent my time at Merrill Lynch for the last two months of Merrill Lynch's life in 2009, a bit of a sad time. It became Bank America after that. And then I left the sell side to join the buy side uh, at BlackRock. And I left about a year after that. So call it two and a half years of traditional finance, of which I'd like to think that I probably actually didn't learn too much of, of what I do today uh, in those roles. And as an analyst, you know, you're mostly churning out Excel models and, and pitch decks and PowerPoints. So uh, a little bit different. But in 2012, the New York tech startup scene was really taking off. I was like, you know what? How hard could it be to build a startup? I'm going to do that. And so I left that, quit everything. Uh, I you know, took my savings and essentially tried to start a company. And it failed very quickly. And I learned very quickly how hard it is to build a startup. And so from there, you know, I, I evolved it into, uh, into a consulting company that helped other founders build their companies from the ground up and not make the same mistakes I did in that short stint of trying to build a company. And so that actually did pretty well. You know, we at our peak had about 15 people on the team, product designers, uh, marketers, engineers, project managers, et cetera. And we had a couple of good case studies as well, including a company called BlockFi, which some of your listeners may know. Uh, and so they were, you know, very early at the time, we gave them a bunch of resources to be able to get off the ground, whether, whether it was their marketing deck, uh, their uh, pitch deck, or all of that. Um, and so that was great. That was the one that really made me go, you know what, um, I can probably do this again and do a traditional venture-backed company at this point, because I've learned so much in the last few years doing this consulting company. And uh, so Percent really was a right idea at the right time. We saw an opportunity. We had a team that could build products. We had a bunch of connections from VCs uh, that we knew uh, from over the years of building that, that network. And uh, we were off to the races from there. Awesome. So what do you think you did differently this time than the last time you founded a company? What were some of the key learnings that helped you out? Yeah, depending on how you count it, this is like my fourth startup at this point. And so I think uh, specifically with a consulting company, uh, which is very much like a services-based business, Uh, services-based businesses are all about margin at the end of the day, right? So in many respects, you hire for uh, need versus potential. And so you solve for the pain points that are present at the time, getting the things done that you absolutely need. 
Uh, and then the people tend to be a little bit more junior because they're just a little bit cheaper at the end of the day. And so it requires more micromanagement. I think the concept of the culture goes out the window because it's just a heavy oversight on what they're doing to make sure that you're delivering on what the client wants versus with percents. Uh, you know, let's take idea aside. Uh, there is a much heavier emphasis on culture because everyone that we've hired with the, the fortune of VC capital uh, has been able to be someone that really has tremendous potential. And so ranging from the most junior person to the most senior person, uh, the upside, the ceiling is, is really high. And so the focus on culture is here present more than ever. And it's something that I had to learn, uh, which wasn't you know something that I knew off the bat before. And it's a perpetually evolving thing because when you have five people, it's very different than 15 people's culture. When you have 15 people, it's very different than 30 people's culture. And so we're just learning and adapting along the way. And it's been, it's been a fun journey so far. Talking about percent, can you share what percent does? Yeah, it's a capital markets infrastructure company. But that's like a loaded question or a loaded comment right there. Uh, so essentially, we focus on one specific asset class called private credit or private debt. Uh, I think most people are pretty familiar with public debt. So, you know, if Apple's issuing bonds or Google's issuing bonds, then they go out to the public markets. Investment banks are there to help structure the transaction. And then they market it to institutional investors, with pension funds, your insurance companies who like investment grade and high yield debt, right? Uh, for private debt, it's a very different market. Uh, the smallest deal could be $50,000. The largest deal could be $500 million. It doesn't really make a difference. And so it's a very analog market uh, that has very similar characteristics in terms of workflow as public debt. And so you have people and companies who need debt capital. You have um, the investors who are looking for, for returns on their public debt, uh, private debt. sorry, And then you have underwriters who are responsible for structuring and syndicating these transactions. So Percent is creating workflow tools to help source deals in the private debt space, to structure them, to syndicate them, and to surveillance and service them after it's all said and done. And it's a market that most people don't realize, but it actually powers so much of the global economy, everything from small business lending to consumer loans to factoring invoices. It's essentially a $7 trillion market that's gone under the radar that is in desperate need of innovation. Wow. So talking about the market, right? How do you select which opportunities will be present on the portion platform and who will be the investors who will be allowed to invest in these opportunities? Yeah, so we have uh, what I like to think are small, medium and large transactions. So the small transactions are going to be you know, under $5 million. The medium ones are going to be between $5 to $15 million. And uh, the large ones are going to be usually you know, $20, $50, $100 million plus. Uh, and in each of those instances, you have a different demographic of who you're targeting. You have small borrowers who need small underwriters, who need small investors, and all the way up to large borrowers who need large underwriters, who need large investors. Uh, so in terms of just giving an example here, um, but a small borrower, for example, could be a Series A, Series C fintech lender, right? Uh, they're going to be somebody who needs debt capital because they're not a bank to be able to grow their portfolio. A large borrower is going to be a uh, essentially someone who's almost ready to go public. Uh, you had, you know, Klarna or a firm before they were uh, public or late stage. Klarna is still late stage, uh, needing debt capital uh, to be able to grow. And so those are going to be types of your, your large borrowers. In terms of how we work, uh, we have a pretty selective process, right? And so we use our market standard deal structures to be able to create these transactions for investors. And in that instance, uh, we focus on um, selecting the borrowers that we think are the highest quality, especially when we're underwriting it. And so in that scenario, uh, we see hundreds of different borrowers and ultimately only the best get through, uh, especially when, again, we are underwriting it. 
In the future, uh, we're allowing for third-party underwriters, because we are an infrastructure company, we're not a tech-enabled investment bank, to actually have them come on board and underwrite these transactions themselves, right? The opportunity for them to bring their own borrowers or their own investors into the fold, leveraging everything we've built from an infrastructure standpoint. And that's allowing for a broader swath of uh, clientele to join the platform, which is great. Uh, But they have to adhere to the structures in place in order to help protect investors' interests at the end of the day. Interesting. So I would assume that private debt is slightly riskier asset class than public debt, right? Can you talk about that aspect of it and what are the traditional default rates that you have seen in these kind of instruments? Yeah, I'm not going to be here to say that private debt is going to be the safest asset class on earth. It definitely isn't, right? And I think when you're able to offer yields in the 15 to 18% range, especially these days with the rates going up, uh, you'll be hard-pressed to say that's a very, very safe investment. What we can do is use the structure and the data that we have at our disposal, which we've standardized and normalized, to be able to help investors make the most educated decisions, including offering diversified products as well that allow them to get exposure across multiple products instead of just one uh, single obligor risk, for example. Right. Um, so in terms of our own performance, we've been very proud of it. Uh, we're tracking at around a 1.59% default rate for all the small and medium-sized transactions on the platform. And this is over you know, three years and change at this point, right? So it's a pretty good track record. We've had two crises in that time frame. We've had COVID and we've also had uh, the kind of current recession environment that we're in right now. Uh, that I think is, is pretty impressive, all things considered. And on the off-platform side, these are more the large transactions that uh, generally are suitable for investment banks to underwrite. We've had a 0% default rate on that side uh, because they have such a history and such a track record there to be able to point to. So uh, those are a lot more uh, secure in terms of a performance standpoint, but their yield is also significantly lower. So a smaller investor would never be interested in that type of yield. Makes sense. And that does sound like a very interesting investment opportunity. Also talking about the recession part, right? You mentioned that recession has, or looming recession has been one aspect of it. So has that impacted your growth plans for percent, at least for the next short term, like three years or two years? Yeah, I think it's interesting, right? Uh, so we're in a situation where I'd like to believe that private debt is one of the most attractive asset classes uh, through this environment in terms of just general, uh, whenever there's macro headwinds here, private debt seems to survive and thrive. When you looked at the 0809 crisis, private debt, just absolutely crushed it, right? And all these banks took steps away from lending. And so all these non-bank lenders stepped in to fill the void. And so private debt has grown consistently in that time frame. When you look at um, the opportunities available to investors today, public equities, obviously getting the brunt of it, right? Like I think Robinhood is down 50% from its peak. Uh, when you look at private and venture investments, uh, Klarna is down like 85%. There's such a close comp to public markets. So equities is for all intents and purposes, not a great place to put your money right now, given the general risks and how closely tied it is to public markets and public equities. And when you look at um, the public debt market, you have a situation where the high yield issuance market is down 75% in terms of issuance volume. People just aren't going back out to market, right? Because there's no point. I'm going to sit on my low cost of capital that I got pre-recession, and I'm going to wait to be able to go back out to market. So private debt is a market that has to continue to go out to market because the durations are much shorter on the instrument side. Uh, These are going to be three-year durations, not 30-year durations. And if that's the case, they have to go out to market. They have to reprice. They have to restructure. And that puts us in a really good spot. We do well whenever transactions happen. And we haven't seen any decline in transaction volume at this rate. Uh, So I like our chances for 
private debt being a recession resilient asset class. And it's one that we think uh, will bode well for our own prospects in the near future. Another development that I wanted to know more about is person's decision to enter the venture debt market and also partner with Amazon credit default swap protection. Can you talk to me about the thought process behind these decisions? Yeah, we have a lot of different asset classes that we're looking to go into over the next, call it three to four to five years. We knew that venture debt was going to be an easy segue, if only for the fact that we've helped and focused on fintech lenders at the outset, right? So fintech lending is essentially what we'd like to call asset-based structuring. Uh, And so you have to underwrite the asset performance themselves, as well as the company's performance to be able to decide whether you want to extend them financing or not. And so if that's the case, then we have the ability to actually do corporate financing very easily as well, right? And that's essentially what venture debt is. You're just stripping away the asset-based part of it, or the asset structuring side of it. So that we felt was a very, very easy evolution of the company and the product itself. And so that just made total sense. When we decided to do that uh, was up in the air and sort of TBD. Uh, but given what we saw in terms of the recession prospects earlier this year, we thought venture capital on the equity side would start to dry up in which case venture debt would be the most valuable uh, product on the market right now to be able to help these startups either continue to grow if they just raise uh, or and whether the the recession and the capital law takes to kind of get things back to normal again uh, or be able to help them get to the next round of financing to continue to grow at that point. And so the decision was made internally and strategically to be able to offer this as soon as possible. And so we've done two transactions so far. Uh, One for ourselves to kind of test out the market. We always test out the market ourselves and see if investor appetite is there. Investor appetite was clearly there. Uh, We over, I think we close to 1.5x oversubscribed our own offering. And then we also just launched one and closed one. uh, We're recording this on July 31st. So about a week and a half ago uh, with uh, another third-party underwriter who brought one of their portfolio companies to market. And that was also very, very well received from our investor base as well. So there's clearly demand for it from the investor side. There's clearly demand for it from the uh, borrower side in these companies. And there's definitely demand for it from underwriters uh, who are you know, recognize the need to be able to help their portfolio companies. When it comes to Anzen, it's essentially a credit default swap uh, for private credit markets, which doesn't really exist, leveraging some of the best of DeFi and TradFi. Uh, we're TradFi. We're not DeFi. Uh, to be able to do it. Uh, we realized that you know our default rate is not zero, right? And I think um, it's a situation where if we had the ability to offer some sort of protection for investors, that'd be great. And we always knew there was something to do on that side. It's just a question of how we were going to do it. And when we were approached uh, by the Anzen team around experimenting and tinkering with something like this, you know, we raised our hand. It just made total logical sense. Uh, if there was an opportunity to tap into a treasury reserve that essentially could cover defaults as long as the right rules and, and were in place around eligibility, we'd be in a really good spot to be able to help give investors that added confidence. And so it's, it's been a good run so far. We've launched one note with Anzin coverage. We're about to launch another one and another one after that. Uh, and it's one that we're very excited about and investors have really gravitated to. Talking about exciting developments, right? One more that I know of is the fact that Percent was named as one of the best places to work in fintech in 2022, right? What does it take to build a best place to work? You have been doing your research on us. I like it. Uh, So yes, that was a very, very recent development. We're very proud of it as a company. Uh, I mentioned earlier too, when we just started talking, that culture was something that was new to me in terms of what to focus on and how to focus on it, because I didn't have to in my last company that I was building, right? Because it was, again, a services-based business where uh, it was all just kind of margin-driven. 
in this instance, culture has come to the forefront of this company. And I think as the management team, we're really proud of the fact that clearly our emphasis on culture is working, right? People are starting to to realize just how great of a place it is to work here at Percent. Uh, our turnover on the team has been incredibly low. I think like literally market leading low. We've only had less than a handful of people leave in our three years and cha- four years and change of, of doing business, uh, which I think is a testament to what we've done here. I think, you know, from a culture standpoint and why it is the best place to work, it is just a concept of transparency that we overlay across everything that we do. I think a lot of companies say that, uh, but we take it one step further, right? We have a process of continuous feedback. We actually do one-on-ones with managers every single month, if not more frequent than that. Uh, managers give feedback in those timeframes, whether it's positive or developmental, and we track how they're doing. And because we have a concept of continuous feedback, we also have a con- process of continuous compensation evaluations as well. And so there are compensation adjustments that happen not just every year, once a year, not just every quarter, uh, but also every month, potentially, if it warrants it, right? And so it's things like that that really put the team members and the employees first uh, that you just I don't think you see in a lot of other companies. And I think our general employee satisfaction and morale, hopefully, uh, should be fairly high. Uh, but we use turnover as obviously a key metric of that. And I think that's very telling in terms of how we've been able to do on turnover and just, you know, the employees so far. Well, I think you can then guess my next question. Is person currently hiring? If yes, for where can one apply and what kind of people do you look for? Yeah, that's a great question. So we actually just brought on board our MBA intern from last summer uh, from, from Wharton. And so he's been fantastic. He did a great job last summer and he's been doing already doing a great job right now in the few short weeks that he's been here. Uh, but I think as of right now, uh, we have a bit of a temporary hiring freeze, uh, if only for the fact that um, I think just from the VC's market standpoint, the concept of uh, growth at all costs is over. And so we're trying to figure out what is our maximum revenue per employee at this point that we can generate in order to figure out you know, how much we can stretch it from here. And then after we do understand that and figure it out, we'll be able to kind of restart the hiring process again. And so we do expect that to happen in short order. We're trying to push as hard as we can uh, to demonstrate numbers and help us better understand what true profit margins could be on a business like ours when we put our, uh, I guess, put us to the limit in terms of uh, the capacity of, of team members that we have and the availability of them to be able to push on that front. Awesome. Now, talking about the industry as a whole, and I know we have touched upon this during the conversation, right? What are some trends in the fintech industry that you really are excited to see play out in the next three to five years? Yeah, I would say, you know, excited may not be the exact best word for this, but it is going to be very interesting to say the least. Uh, we've had such a low rate environment for so many years uh, that this kind of new normal is going to be, I think, very difficult for a lot of companies. Um, but this high rate environment has a huge impact on cost of capital, right? And so I think fintech lending has had a boom for several years at this point. And a lot of these fintech lenders are going to need to figure out uh, how they're going to be able to navigate this market uh, in this new normal, if you will. Uh, I think the thesis of private credit being recession resilient is going to be tested here. 08 and 09 was very different than the environment that we're in right now. I think it is, to, in my mind, an accurate thesis, but it's going to see how it plays out ultimately. And uh, I think crypto, you know, figuring out what it's going to be when it grows up. Uh, they, it's gone through many cycles at this point. Yes, the answer always is if you hold for long term, it'll always be okay. I think that works until it doesn't. And so it's going to be very interesting to see what the real world use cases are coming out of crypto and blockchain, because we're, you know, 12 years into it at this point, maybe a little more than that. Um, and I think it's still in many respects trying to find its own footing. 
And I think it probably will get there. Uh, it, it's such it's a large enough asset class at this point, uh, but still, the, the jury's still out on that specifically. And then maybe the last one, uh, because it is such an interesting opportunity for them, is Apple's foray into financial services. Uh, they have the largest balance sheet that you could possibly ever imagine. They're not a bank, uh, and yet they're venturing into you know lending and other type of banking esque activity. Uh, they have the opportunity to be probably the best, biggest player on the street if they try to. And so that first foray into you know buy now, pay later for them is very interesting. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of products that come out after that. We'll see how it goes. Uh, but I would you know generally never bet against them. And so it'll be interesting to see how they, they navigate uh, this market that they haven't really been in before. Do you see a sort of conversion in which earlier it used to be there's a traditional companies and their startups or disrupting industries? Now, do you see there's sort of a converging trend in which traditional companies are also trying to disrupt and enter industries that they otherwise traditionally would not have? I think so. Uh, but I think it's because this whole, maybe the last 15, 20 years in terms of just booming technology has created such insanely profitable businesses that before they were focused on their own core forte, right? Whether it was Amazon selling products, whether it was Apple selling hardware inside an ecosystem, whether it was Google selling ads, they have refined those and finessed those to absolute perfection to the point where it prints billions and billions of free cash flow every quarter. And so at that point, yeah, I'm going to try and find other opportunities to be able to uh, maximize even more profit margins. And you have the room to experiment. When you're a startup, when you're cash constrained, you know, you don't have that opportunity. And so you have to kind of hit the mark uh, very quickly. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble because you don't have product market fit. Google, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, they can not have product market fit for years. And it doesn't matter uh, because they have the opportunity to just try things. Like you look at uh, AWS versus Azure from Microsoft versus Google Cloud. Google Cloud is doing terribly. Like it's actually such a huge loss leader. But it doesn't matter because the ad business is printing so much that it really makes no difference. So if they have a thesis that the cloud is going to be important for the, for the foreseeable future, they can continue to pump money into it uh, because they know it's going to be a uh, something that they'll be able to win market share on going forward. Uh, so that luxury is great. Uh, and all the kudos to those large companies that can do it. Startups, unfortunately, don't have that, that luxury of being able to you know, try things out and have it fail on them and still continue to pour money into it. For the last segment of our podcast, what I like to do is a round of rapid fire questions, just so the listeners can know more about you as a person. So my first one is, what is a fun fact about you that most people might not know? Yeah, so I have a bit of a zoo at the apartment uh, right now, which most people don't realize. Uh, standard, you know, I have a dog. That's uh, totally fine. Uh, I used to foster kittens uh, for the ASPCA. That was phenomenal until, you know, the dog didn't really take too kindly to the kittens. Uh, he thought they were, they were all up in his space. Uh, and then I also have a 32-year-old turtle. And then somehow uh, on my balcony, uh, pigeons have decided to make a nest on there. So I am now, I guess, nesting pigeons and, you know, like feeding them periodically and like keeping their nest clean and like all that stuff. So it's been a fun exercise, but yeah, it's uh, I do have a little bit of zoo at the apartment. What is your favorite book or podcast of all time? If you have to name one. Yeah, I think I do listen to podcasts pretty often, especially with a dog. You're always, you know, giving, take them out for a walk. Uh, so I wouldn't say I have a favorite podcast, but I do have a slew of them that I just listen to on a regular basis that keeps me up to date on what's going on. So uh, between this week and startups for just uh, the usual day-to-day -day changes in the tech ecosystem, 
Um, that's been great. I think for the longer form ones, like uh, good interviews and good deep dives into breakdowns of companies, I think Cartoon Avatars is a fairly recent one that has been quite good in terms of the people they were able to bring on for podcast guests. And then the Acquired Podcast is just fantastic research and deep dives into companies that you just never know about. Uh, so you know the companies, but you don't know how they got there. That's always been great. And I think the all-in podcast is just for pure entertainment at this point, uh, because the the way they go after each other is absolutely hilarious. So that's my my usual repertoire uh, of podcasts I listen to on a, on a regular basis. Awesome. So I know you have done a bit of investing yourself, right? What are like a couple of three to five key traits that you look for in an entrepreneur investing in? Yeah, I think uh, mental fortitude is probably one of the most important ones. This is uh, a very, very difficult journey. It's definitely not for everyone. And that's okay. It's not for everyone. But you need to be able to see the forest from the trees and then be able to kind of just put your head down and go, even when the entire world is telling you it's not going to work. And it's just, you know, uh, it's going to fail very quickly. Uh, I think empathy is also super important. It's one that I think is is undervalued in some respects. Uh, you hear about a lot of the, the CEOs who are known for having hot tempers and may not be the most empathetic, uh, but I would say the ones who, and those are you know visionary founders, CEOs, et cetera, uh, but the ones who really kind of affiliate and align themselves with their team are the ones who get real buy-in as well, right? And so empathy is one that when you're authentic and people really feel like um, you understand them and you care, uh, they become your own champions as well. Um, and so they become believers in the vision uh, and maybe the last one would be um, be the best salesperson that you can be. I think sales is a a trait for CEOs that often gets overlooked because they always think you're just selling to VCs. That's definitely not the case. You're selling to VCs. You're selling to your clients. You're selling to your team to get them to buy in and getting new team members. Uh, it's selling, selling, selling nonstop, and just you know constantly be pitching your story and pitching your company vision. Doesn't matter who's listening. Uh, it's going to be a very, very helpful attribute to have. So those are the three that have served me well, at the very least. Um, and it's one that I look for in other founders that I want to invest in as well. I absolutely agree. And the funny thing about selling is that people seem to think it's a bad thing. People have this image of this sort of persuasive salesperson who's trying to get them to buy something, but that's not true, right? No, definitely not. It's definitely not gimmicky and it's definitely not like, you know, slimy or whatever it may be. Uh, it's, it's demonstrating the passion and the excitement that you have for your business, right? And because you need everyone possible to buy in uh, in order to get to where you want to go, there's a lot of luck that goes into it. A lot of, you know, selling to people you didn't expect would actually come back to be able to help you. I can't tell you how many people and how many meetings I've taken. And I was like, this is not going to go anywhere. And I sold them anyway. And then it comes back that they end up being a client. They end up making a crazy referral that I had no idea would even happen. And so you just never know where it's going to come from. So put your best foot forward, put your best face forward. Uh, and you know it's only going to lead to better things. My last question for today is that if you could go back in time, what would you tell the 20-something-year-old Nelson? Oh, that's, that's a good one. Uh, 20-year-old 20, 20 Nelson was significantly less uh, mature than 33-year-old than Nelson. So it uh, would, would take a lot of advice, I'm sure. Uh, but I would say, you know, the big thing is to really enjoy the journey. I think life is a journey. Building a startup is a journey. And to really keep a level head above all else. That will serve anybody and any founder really, really well. Uh, nothing's ever as bad as it seems. Uh, so, you know, you could have lost a client. You could have not raised money that time. You could be almost running out of cash, whatever it may be. But it's not that bad, right? You have a team behind you. The sun will rise again tomorrow. It's going to be okay. Having said that, nothing's ever as good as it seems either. And so you may be feeling like this client's a done deal. It's going to close. It probably may not close. Uh, you may think that that VC is definitely in. They may not probably be in. They may pull their term sheet. 
whatever it may be. So as long as you can keep that level head, nothing's ever as bad as it seems, nothing's ever as good as it seems, and just keep trucking. Uh, it's going to be okay. And just enjoy the journey along the way and you know, stop and smell the roses every once in a while. Well, thank you so much for that, Nelson. And thank you for joining us today. It was a pleasure having you here. Thanks so much for having me. It was great talking to you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the What in Fintech podcast. If you like the show, then please show us some love on social media or consider leaving a review. It means a lot to us and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. As always, special thanks to our editor, Rafael Osteria. Signing off until next time, I'm your host, Tarang Gupta. Thank you.